Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we chat with authors of all sorts and, well, all kinds of books here, too. And today, we're joined by Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And Sam, look, there's no better way to start a bar fight than to pick the greatest teams in the world. I mean, that's really hard. And also, you could have a bar fight deciding what's a sport, what's a team. Talk about both of those things. And was it hard or was it easy? Because something's telling me it's pretty hard. I thought it would be easy. You know, I had those arguments at the bar and, you know, they always ended in just someone storming out because it was impossible to answer. And what I realized was that there's really no set criteria for how we define greatness. And no one had really done a rigorous study or tried to actually nail it down. So that was the, one of the toughest things I, I had to do at the beginning was define greatness. And in the end, what I decided was that we have to be a little more specific about what a team is. A team has to have a certain number of people. It can't be two people. That's more of a partnership. I finally decided that five five people was really the point at which group contributions and group chemistry was more important than individual performance. So basketball was really the smallest sport that I studied. I had another set of questions, which was, how do you define greatness? And, you know, for me, one of the problems is when people talk about great teams, there's no real set period of time that we apply to it. A lot of people talk about teams that were great in one season or had an incredible undefeated season. But what I really wanted to study, what I realized was important, is teams that had sustained their dominance for a long time. Because I think any team can get lucky. They can win a championship in one season or two seasons. But really to rule out luck completely and to talk about culture and chemistry, then you really had to set the bar at four years. And let's talk about some competing theories that are out there, because the name of your book is The Captain Class. Some people think it's the coaches. Some people think it's the management. Some people think it's that superstar player or the team of players. What led you to this categorization and your choice to study the captains? I was completely shocked. I I had all of the same assumptions that I think everyone does. When I finally identified these teams, and that took years and years of work, I mean, I went through 25,000 teams, the entire history of sports since the 1880s, all over the world, and I got down to 17 of them. And, you know, the first thing I looked at was talent, right? I thought talent would be the thing. And, you know, but I quickly realized that some of these teams, you know, they all were talented, but some of them had talent that was clearly average or even mediocre in some cases. So it wasn't that. The second thing I thought was coaching. You know, it's got to be coaching, but to my great surprise, there wasn't a pattern there. I'm not saying coaching isn't important, but some of these teams had more than one coach. You know, they changed coaches or, you know, some of them didn't even have coaches or had coaches who really didn't take an active role. And in fact, only one of them had a coach who was considered a great coach when their run of dominance began. So that wasn't the magic bullet I was looking for. I also looked at things like tactics. You know, I thought maybe they just had incredible, brilliant strategies that stood out above the rest. But again, you know, only a handful of them could say that. So that wasn't a pattern either. It didn't have anything to do with organization or even management at the higher levels. The only thing that they all had in common, and it was slap your forehead obvious. I mean, it was just so plain as day when I looked at it, was that these runs of greatness, these long streaks of dominance, they always corresponded almost precisely to the arrival and departure of one player. And that player in every single case, was the leader of the team or the captain. 
And let's take a deep dive into your captain theory with the first captain I want to talk about and this great American sports franchise called the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell, who was he? Bill Russell is, in my mind, the greatest team leader in sports history. And what that team accomplished, I've never seen anything the likes of it. I mean, they won 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons. And people forget that. We talk about the the Bulls, Michael Jordan, and the, the Warriors today, and LeBron James. You know, but what we don't see is that incredible consistency. The whole notion of a team that has won 10 NBA titles and yet is still hungry to win an 11th is kind of incredible. And they pulled it off year after year. And now, again, that streak began and ended with Bill Russell. It started his rookie season when they won their first championship. And the Celtics had never won a title before, ever. And the year he retired was the last championship of the streak. And the, the following season, they, they didn't even make it to 500 and didn't make the playoffs. It took many more years for them to return to glory. So this was completely bracketed by Bill Russell. And I want to make the point very clearly that I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to have a great team. I mean, you need a lot of things. A lot of things have to work. But to me, the captain is really like the verb in a sentence. You know, the adjectives, the nouns, you know, the punctuation, all these other things might be more interesting, more memorable. But without the verb, it's not a sentence. It doesn't work together. And that's kind of the role these captains played in bringing these elements together. And Russell was such a great example because Russell was absolutely on the court completely strange. He was a big man who did not score, which was very unusual for the day. And you know, back then, defenders weren't supposed to leave their feet, you know, but he would fly through the air and block shots, and he played this ferocious brand of defense. It was completely relentless. You know, no one had ever seen anything like that, and his numbers were, were not startling, so people didn't understand it. And, you know, off the court, too, he was strange. I mean, he didn't care about endorsements. He didn't sign autographs. He was very prickly with the press and, and didn't really seem to care much about the fans or being a role model or anything that we associate with with leadership. You know, in fact, he, he turned down the hall of fame, you know, when he was inducted, he said, he just didn't want any part of it. People thought he was an oddball, but really what they didn't understand was that all he cared about was the collective accomplishments of the team and all his effort, everything went inside that team and inside the team, his teammates loved him, you know, and everything about him, they understood him completely and they would do anything for him. And, on the court, you know, he understood that, you know, what the team didn't need was someone pouring in uh, baskets and getting in the highlight reel. They needed someone who would do all the unglamorous grunt work, every dirty job that needed to be done in order to help the team win. And that was his role. So he's just the epitome of great leadership. And he was un- misunderstood in his time. And, you know, I think only today we're really starting to understand the full dimensions of what he brought to that team. And anyone who was around during that day knows who Bill Russell was. By the way, he played at the University of San Francisco and took him straight to a college championship as well. When we come back, more with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Sam Walker, the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. We were just talking about Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, and Sam, you began the book with the words of this legendary captain, quote, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such a great encapsulation of what you need to be if you want to be a great leader and, uh, you know, all the different ways that you need to think about your role and how much you need to, how hard you need to work and how much of yourself you need to just forget about. You you really need to kind of give yourself over completely to to the goals of of the group. And that's something that we're not trained to do. Business schools aren't teaching people to do that. Selflessness and self-sacrifice aren't generally words people use for most CEOs in America. We can, we can say that safely, Sam. Talk about the Coleman play, because one of the things about Bill Russell, and we're going to learn this more about some of these other captains, is this word called desire. And my goodness, anybody who played around Bill Russell understood what that word meant. So this is one of my favorite stories because I think it it shows one of the characteristics that we all kind of know is important, but that we don't really understand why it's important. And that is relentlessness. And Bill Russell was relentless. I mean, to an extreme, he would get sick before every game that he played even meaningless games. He would throw up in the locker room. And in fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, you should go throw up. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, because he he cared so much. But the Coleman play was a perfect example of why this matters. Now, this happened in in his rookie season, and they made it to the NBA Finals in a Game 7 against the St. Louis Hawks. And this was one of the first Game 7s, and it was just a huge event. It was incredible pressure, and Russell was a rookie. Now, late in the game, uh, Boston had a one-point lead. It was about a minute left. And Boston got a rebound, and Russell charged down the court, and he tried to dunk the ball. Missed up his timing, he missed. And St. Louis got the rebound. And now St. Louis, a forward named Jack Coleman, had been sort of hanging back behind the play. And they quickly inbounded the ball to him at, at midcourt. Now he's at midcourt with the ball and a running start. Now Russell, who had missed that dunk, where was he? He was underneath his own basket, off the court, on the other side. He was about 96 feet from the basket, and Coleman was probably about 45 feet with a running start. But when Coleman came to the rim and to make a layup, now this is late in the game. They would have taken a lead. It might have been the end. This blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away, and it was Russell. And he had somehow covered twice the distance that Coleman had in the same amount of time. I mean, nobody on uh, in that arena would have thought he had a chance, and he certainly must not have even known himself. But just that raw desire that he demonstrated over and over again in competition. The thing about it is that was consistent for him, and what we don't understand is that studies have shown that relentlessness is highly contagious. You know, if a group of people you know, that's doing something together thinks that one person in that group is giving 100% effort, a real maximum effort, all of them will raise their own performance. If you have someone in your midst like that who is relentless and committed to playing at all times at 100%, there are going to be serious marginal gains that you will you will see in your teamwork. And that's just not something we can quantify. So it's not something that we teach, but I think it's about time we started. We've all been around people who have that kind of drive and focus and what it does to our game. We raise our game. We raise the bar. And when those people aren't present, we don't even know where the bar is. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, no, it's funny because there are some emotions that are contagious inside a group and relentlessness is contagious always in a good way. Toughness is always contagious in a good way. If you show toughness and perseverance, others will too. And another one is emotional control, which is something all these leaders had. They had the ability to overcome really difficult personal circumstances and not just compete well, but compete at a higher level than ever. And Tom Brady of the Patriots is a great example of this. You know, a couple of seasons ago after this whole deflate gate situation, you know, he served a suspension, but he came back and played one of his greatest seasons. But even after they won the Super Bowl and this incredible comeback against the Atlanta Falcons, we find out that his mother had been undergoing chemotherapy, you know, and had been diagnosed with cancer that season. So he was going through that and he never said a word about it. No one knew about it because he had the control to put that away and to play as hard as he could when he was playing and deal with it separately. No doubt. And we're going to get to Brady in a little bit because it's such a fascinating chapter in your book. But let's talk about one more basketball player because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. Talk about Timmy Duncan. Who is he? He is a very unusual guy. He uh, was a great swimmer. I mean, really had uh, incredible talent. Could have maybe even been an Olympic uh, swimmer. But, you know, the hurricane came in and destroyed the local pool. And about the same time, his mother passed away. And, you know, he had uh, these hard knocks. And, you know, he started picking up basketball and was very lightly recruited. In fact, Wake Forest was one of the only schools that really took him seriously. He was a very skinny kid and just hadn't grown into his body. But, you know, he he got there and really matured and became a really hot NBA prospect. But, you know, I don't think anyone really thought that that he was going to become the, the star that he was or that he would develop his skills the way he did. But the thing that's fascinating about Tim, there's two things I think there's so much about him that is instructive for leaders. But I think the the most important thing really is the way he played. Now, he had the talent to dominate the NBA in terms of scoring, you know, or any of the famous, gaudiest statistics. But if you look at his totals, it's really amazing. Some, some years he was very prolific scorer. Some years it was not. His blocks and rebounds and other things were, were off the charts. He would change his position on the court and play different positions depending on the makeup of the team. It just showed that he had the same quality that Russell had, which is that he he didn't care what his numbers were or what you thought of him or whether he got on the cover of a magazine. He only cared about the team winning, and he would do whatever grunt work needed to be done, and he would change his role to fit. But the thing about Tim Duncan that really everyone should study is the way he communicates. I was completely surprised when I looked at these captains because the first thing I thought the first way that you motivate a team is is with a speech. You give a big speech, right? You motivate them with words. And none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they did not like to do it. Some of them purposely avoided it. And I did not understand this. I didn't understand how they communicated effectively with their team. I, thought, I went right to Duncan. Because if you've ever watched Tim Duncan give an interview, you know that he is not a charismatic guy. I mean, he sounds like he's getting a colonoscopy when he's answering questions. He just has no emotion. He's, he's monosyllabic, right? He doesn't come across as a charismatic person. So how does he communicate? Well, he talks a lot, but it's a different sort of communication. He's always working the room, talking individually to one person, one-on-one, with incredible intensity. He stares, uses his eye contact and gestures and touch 
to communicate very intensely with people. And he listens as much as he talks. He doesn't lecture. He listens. And he has these interactions all the time. And he has them in the moment, especially when someone has done something wrong or needs uh, encouragement. That's when he springs into action. And what I realized is that the Spurs talk more than any team I've ever seen. I mean, they're always talking on the floor, on the bench, constant communication. And this creates an atmosphere where everyone feels like they can contribute. They feel heard. And they also feel like they have to account for themselves. And all the problems that team had were addressed in the moment. Nothing ever festered. This talkative style that they had allowed them to address problems in the moment to move past them. And that's why they were so good for so long. That's why they made the playoffs in 19 consecutive seasons with an incredible revolving cast of players and won five championships and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. It was because that that whole climate that Duncan created, you know, allowed them to slot new people in and got them uh, talking and solving problems. So even though they didn't always have the best talent or certainly not the most money, they were the most dominant team of, of their era in the NBA. And we're talking to Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And what a terrific series of stats for Tim Duncan, wherever you might put him in the pantheon of greats. 19 consecutive playoffs, five championships, and the best winning percentage in National Basketball Association history. And by the way, if you like what we do here on Our American Story, speaking of, well, at least trying to raise the bar and lead the dialogue, maybe be the captain of the class in storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Five best stories each week, you'll get them. Also, please send this link to a friend. If you like what you're hearing, please help us succeed in the market and in the marketplace of ideas and stories. We're working hard to get this out to the American people. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of hate. This show is always about, well, interesting, compelling, and good things. When we come back, Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, and for anybody out there who's listening, leading anything, and anyone who's a sports fan, but even if you're not, what a great discussion. We were just talking about Tim Duncan, probably the highest paid person to ever have written an academic psychology paper, because in college, Sam, he co-authored one titled Blowhard Snobs and Narcissists interpersonal reactions to excessive egotism. In the opening paragraph is the line, quote, simply put, we don't like egotistical people. So even as an undergrad, Tim Duncan got it. It just shows you the level of intelligence and emotional intelligence that these great leaders had. I mean, I don't know. I think, I think that my sense with Duncan, I've never spoken to him about this. I know he's very proud of the paper, but 
I think that really was who he was and that that research that he did really explained to him that who he was as a leader, he didn't look like a leader that you would you would pick out of a crowd. I mean, his teammates always said if you walked into practice, you would never imagine that he was the leader of the team because he didn't, he wasn't the loudest voice in the room. He wasn't a huge presence, a, a charismatic person who barked out orders. He didn't do any of the things leaders are supposed to do. What I found in my book and what I hope is inspiring in it to people is that, you know, you may not think that you have leadership characteristics. You may think that there are things that you just aren't good at, but Really, the, the truth is that all of the things that these leaders did were really about behavior and the choices that they made in the team context every day. And behavior can be modeled and leadership can be, can be uh, improved. Choices can be better. And when you start to understand what leadership really involves and you start to separate out the myths, then um, you can see why someone like Tim Duncan may not be the guy on posters in every kid's bedroom, but he is by far the winningest and most effective leader of his generation. You know, his coach once said that Duncan didn't have an ounce of MTV in him. He even (laughs) agreed to be paid less than market value. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I mean, his agent must have went, Timmy, what are you talking about? You want the maximum so I can get the maximum commission. What are you doing? You know, Tom Brady did the same thing with the Patriots. I mean, he would restructure his contract every year so that they could have more salary cap room to sign other players. I mean, it's that's what you do. He's made more money, I'm sure, than he ever imagined he would make in his life, and, and as most of these players have. And it's not an affectation. I mean, he cared about the team and the team's result. That's where all his satisfaction came from, and it came much more than his satisfaction from having – more money in the bank or having, you know, yet another supercar in his garage. I mean, that stuff didn't matter. And he's an incredible person. And, you know, I have so much respect for him. And I, I do think that there's a lot of appreciation for him, but he's often left out of the conversation when people talk about the greatest players of all time. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand this hall of fame mentality where, you know, we separate out an individual from his teammates and say, this person deserves special praise. I don't understand how any – I think they knew that, that their – whatever their accomplishments were, were all dependent on other people, and that you can't really divide a team into its important parts and its less important parts. It's really all one unit. Indeed. I want to quote from the book because it's such a good quote, and it's something we all know and experience in any workplace. Quote, one of the great paradoxes of management – is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. You then cited a study of superstar CEOs and how, as they lift themselves up, they often lower others in the process. Tim Duncan and so many members of your captain class, they did the exact opposite. Talk about that. Well, my favorite example of this is a woman named Carla Overbeck. And I doubt that you immediately remember that name. She was the captain of that great 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup and you know, really dominated that sport for about five, six years. Just one of the best soccer teams of all time. And you remember Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandi Chastain, all the big stars of that team. But there's a reason you don't know Carla Overbeck, and it's because she did not care. She did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight whatsoever, any personal accolades. And she was not the best player on the team. She was a central defender, and you know, she never did anything flashy. She never scored. She, 
you know, would, would pass the ball off the minute she got it to one of her teammates. And she, you know, she just played with this relentless pace. But what was amazing about her is that I think she understood what leadership is really about. And it's really about service. She was incredible with this because she did things I'd never seen before. When this team would go on a long road trip to Japan or Norway, they would get to their hotel and they'd be exhausted and they'd get a knock on the door and they'd open it up. And it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying their bags from the bus to their rooms for them. Now, this is the captain of the team doing this. I asked one of her former coaches about this. I said, how is this leadership? How does this help her be a leader? And he said, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing because Carla Overbeck would do these things on behalf of her teammates. And they understood that to her, all she cared about was the collective of the team. She did not care about herself. She would do anything for them. And this gave her a certain amount of currency, like a, a bank account that she could spend when she needed to. And she would spend it on the field because the minute that someone messed up or was not focused, she would be all over them or encouraging them when they did something great. And it meant something. Everyone understood who she was and what she was all about. And it had great power when she did it in competition and made the team better. Let's talk about football now and, and two teams in particular. First, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steeler teams. Who is Jack Lambert and why did you include him in this book? Most folks think of Terry Bradshaw when they think of that powerhouse Steeler team. Why was Jack Lambert the guy you focused on? But really the heart and soul of that team was his defense. I mean, it was an extraordinary, historically great defense. And that was really the uh, the unit that drove that team forward. And just look at the moment that Jack Lambert showed up. I mean, the Steelers had never won a Super Bowl before he got there. And, uh, you know, never. And, and now they're, you know, they've won more, I think, than any other NFL team. And, you know, they are, uh, they are really a creation of Lambert's tenacious style and his aggressive play and his relentlessness. Jack Lambert was a player who had an understanding of something that all these, these elite captains knew to some extent, but I think he was probably the best example of it. They understood the power of nonverbal communication, of just gestures. They understood that there were moments where they needed to do something in full view of their teammates that would show their level of commitment and passion because that would transfer it to them and allow them to play harder. And Jack Lambert was famous, of course, for, uh, you know, he lost a couple teeth in high school playing pickup basketball and he uh, had a prosthetic denture that he wore in public, but he would take it off on the field. So they had a toothless, you know, mouth and he, and he would scare people. So that was part of it. But my favorite Jack Lambert story that I think shows you uh, the genius of his leadership was that they were playing a, a game, I believe in 1976, and they had won the Super Bowl, but they started one and four. People had written them off, like it's over for the Steelers, and they had to win this game. They had to beat the Bengals, and he wound up playing probably the finest game of his career in terms of the number of tackles. He recovered fumbles. He basically accounted for most of his team's points single-handedly, so it was an incredible game. But now in the middle of this game, he had uh, came into the game, he had a cut on his hand, and he bandaged it up, and you know he went out there, and of course the bandages failed, and the blood starts spurting out. It was all over his uniform and his pants. I mean, it was a mess. I tracked down one of the trainers, and I asked him, why didn't you, know, you just rewrap that bandage when he came off the field or change his uniform at halftime or something? And he said, you don't understand. He's like, Jack Lambert loved having blood on his uniform. I mean, he understood how powerful that message was and how 
uh, how much harder it made his teammates play and how much it intimidated his opponents. And uh, he, he did that on purpose. And Jack Lambert did all kinds of things that might seem crazy or unhinged. But when you listen to him talk about it, I mean, he always says, look, these were calculated acts. These were things that I did, uh, you know, on purpose because I understood the power that they would have and I understood the effect they would have on the team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that that team was so good and so consistently great uh, and won four Super Bowls in six years, which no team has ever done. And what great storytelling. And when we come back, the final segment with Sam Walker, more stories to come. Author of The Captain Class, this is Our American Stories. back with our final segment of our conversation with Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section and author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. It's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't be disappointed. I had to read something to you, Sam, from quarterback John Elway. Of course, he played at Denver. And this was him talking about Jack Lambert. And by the way, he was a rookie. And here's what he wrote. Lambert had no teeth. He was slobbering all over himself, and I'm thinking, you can have your money back. Just get me out of here. Let me go be an accountant. I can't tell you how badly I wanted it out of there. And so you were talking about all of this nonverbal communication. My goodness, it didn't just fire up his team. It scared the heck out of the opponents. Talk about courage and how captains develop it. You know, a lot of it comes from emotional control. And, you know, we don't think of Jack Lambert as being someone who was uh, emotionally controlled. But like all of these great athletes, you know, he was not someone who got in trouble off the field. I mean, he was not someone who got in a lot of brawls. And none of these captains, they were usually very quiet. Off the field, Jack Lambert was really kind of an introverted, private person. I mean, he was a big reader. And, you know, on road trips, he would, he would often just sit in his room reading a book. I mean, he wasn't an outsized character. That aggression that he had on the field didn't translate to the rest of his life. And that was something I saw with all of these athletes. And, you know, I think it's a way of redefining courage because, you know, he poured everything into football and, and all of his aggression, all of his passion, everything. You know, he would, he would put it all out on the field. And, you know, when he wasn't there, he had this incredible ability to, to shut it off and to, kind of return to normal and, and to, to, to be a quieter person. And, you know, that's a form of courage that we don't really understand. It's the ability to control your emotions. You know, being able to do that, you know, it's not courage in the sense of, of you know, running up the hill in a, in, a, in a rain of bullets in some big military battle, but it's a different sort of courage that I think is very contagious because I think people see you dealing with your emotions that way, being able to control them, being able to target them toward objectives. And I think uh, it gives everyone a better understanding of, of how to operate in a team environment and, and what courage really is. Let's talk about Tom Brady at the University of Michigan, where he played as a collegian. No one could have imagined what would have been in store for him as an NFL player. He was a sixth-round draft pick and had trouble keeping his starting job in college. 
No, he lost it. I mean, he lost it to Drew Henson, who was, you know, uh, supposed to be the next great, you know, quarterback, the second coming of, you know, Joe Montana. Yeah, no, he went through a lot. And, you know, um, the fact that he even got on the field was a fluke because he only got to play because of a serious injury to Drew Bledsoe. And it really shows you, you know, that, that it's very easy sometimes to not look inside someone. I mean, I think he had great talent, physical talent, and, you know, we'd seen many flashes of that at Michigan. But what was really lurking inside him was incredible elite leadership ability and, you know, also great tactical mind and all those things that, you know, I think scouts too often dismiss. Brady was tough because, you know, Brady's accomplishments, I know everyone loves to talk about Brady and the uh, greatness of the Patriots, but... You know, until I believe this season when they made another Super Bowl and, and won eight, eight straight AFC championship games, you know, their record was very similar to the 49ers in that long stretch where they were very dominant. So same number of Super Bowls, roughly the same winning percentage. So I had a very hard time saying that either one of those teams was unique. So initially for the hardcover, I didn't put the Patriots in, but later on I after they made that Super Bowl, I decided to put them in because I thought their record had clearly outpaced the 49ers. But the thing about Brady that stands out to me the most beyond his leadership qualities is his relationship with his coach. And that is something that is fascinating to me. And I said that coaches weren't the, the important factor, the crucial factor, and I don't think they are. But what's really important in these great teams with coaches is that they have a partnership with their captain. And I saw this over and over again. It wasn't a boss-employee kind of relationship. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady had this relationship that was unusual. It was like the relationship Tim Duncan had with Greg Popovich, too. It was very affectionate, and there's a lot of, of love between them, but they knew how to fight, and they would fight all the time. They would come into conflict about tactics. It was never personal. It was always about how the team was playing. You know, and Belichick would, would go to team meetings and rip Brady in front of everyone for mistakes that he made. And Brady would take it and it would tell everyone that no one's above the team. But, you know, if Tom Brady didn't like the Super Bowl playbook that he was given, he would tell him to rip it up and start over. So that partnership, I think, was really underrated. And if you remember that first season, Tom Brady came, he was a six round draft pick. No one thought was uh, anything. And Bill Belichick was a guy who got fired at Cleveland that no one thought had the chops to be a head coach and together they became two of the legends of football but I don't think you can separate them I don't think it was something they could have achieved individually I think that partnership and their ability to work together was so important and I think the message for coaches and people managers and people who are trying to assemble teams with this kind of leadership model is that you've got to pick someone to lead that team that you can really partner with and that you respect and that you can uh, really treat as a peer. I think that's true. And there was a balance of power you wrote about and a mutual respect and that fighting wasn't a bad thing. And you equate the great captains and coaches to married couples. I was lucky to see a great marriage. My mom and dad would fight like cats and dogs and it was over right after the fight. And then I'd see them loving each other. And then when they disagreed, they'd go at it. And it was respect for each other. And they taught me how to fight which is a wonderful thing. People who can disagree and then carry on, you're giving them the greatest gift in the world. It's true. It's so underrated. And it's funny because especially in sports, there's this weird sense that conflict is bad. You know, there, there's, there are certain players, and the, and the thing about these captains was they were not easy to manage. 
I mean, they would push back on anything they didn't think was in the best interest of the team, whether it was something big or small. They would push back against the coaches, but they would push back against their teammates as well. They were willing to stand apart. And you talk about courage, and you know that's an underrated form of courage. It's the ability to just dissent from the group. And science has actually shown that, that there is a, an element of physical discomfort that comes with standing apart. So it's something that's not easy to do. And yet it's so crucial. You know, all the, the studies that have been done of team performance show that teams that really work together in, in close ways, as they do in sports, a certain level of conflict is essential. But there's a different kind of conflict. There's two kinds, really. There's a, a kind of conflict they call task conflict, which is really about an argument about process, about how the team is doing something or how they should do something. And there's another form of conflict, which is personal conflict. This is when the source of the conflict is really just, I don't like you. And there's a real difference. Now, all these captains, whenever they introduce conflict in their teams, they made a huge point to make clear that it wasn't personal. They never singled out individuals. They never blamed any one person. It was always about the collective, and it was always about the task and the process. And it's a huge difference. It's so easy to mistake those two things and look at someone who is – creating conflict uh, as a bad thing when you're not really necessarily looking at why they're doing it or how they're doing it. And that was one of the real secrets I feel like I uncovered, something I had no idea about until I really took a hard look at it. Sam, you wrote something fascinating about all of these captains, that they were more like jazz musicians than conductors, and that they freely improvised on and off the court to get the job done. It was one of the things that I had never considered when I think about teams, but there was a famous researcher named Richard Hackman, who was a Harvard psychologist who passed away a few years ago. He spent all of his career embedded with performance teams, teams that do things in real time, whether airplane cockpit crews or emergency room units or even symphony orchestras. And he would watch the way leadership worked. And what he discovered was so exactly parallel to what I found in these teams, which is that the leader's charisma and talent did not matter. It just wasn't a factor. They could have it, they could not have it. It didn't really make a difference. All that mattered, in fact, in terms of leadership inside a group is that every single important function of leadership gets done. That's it. You know, anything that needs to be done in order to help the team from a leadership perspective, as long as someone does it, it doesn't even have to be the leader. It could be somebody else. And on these great teams, what you saw was that these captains had established themselves as the person who would do anything. If there's a burning building that no one else wants to go into, they're going to go into it. And once that's established, then basically everyone on the team, whether a superstar or a bench player, understands that they're free to do their jobs and focus on what they need to do. And if they want to contribute to leadership, they can. They can do it the ways they want to. They can do the things that they're good at, whether it's mentorship or you know, being the spark plug or being a sheriff or doing something else to help the team as a group. And you start to see this happening, this beautiful symphony that starts where everyone does what they're good at and everyone pitches in and every single function of leadership gets taken care of. And a great leader will never feel territorial, will never feel unhappy that someone is doing a leadership function because frankly, it's a hard job. Being a great leader, you know, and sustaining excellence is incredibly taxing and difficult. And Anyone who's doing it the right way will be so happy to have help and assistance from others. 
Well, and this book will help others and assist them too. We've been talking to Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and author of The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. Pick it up on Amazon. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And Sam, thanks so much for doing this. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, Five Best Stories Each Week. They come in audio form and in print form. And again, all you have to do is give us your email address. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The Captain Class, Sam Walker's latest. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories. And now, here's the story of one of America's top comedians who became so successful, it scared him to death. Here's Dave Chappelle's story. This whole world is drug-infested, hate-infested, drug-infested world. Hate drugs. I heard the worst drug story. You know what my friend told me? You know what he's dealing with? His landlord is hooked on crack. That's, that's terrible. That's pressure. Your landlord's hooked on crack. That means you've got to have the rent. <laughs> you come around. I got the rent. It's not even due yet. It's the tenth. Come on, I need it. <laughs> Let me just get twenty dollars of it now, and then uh, just give me the rest of the end of the month. Every couple hours. Hey, look, I'm gonna need some more of the rent. This building's falling apart. Things came up. <laughs> Comes home early from a party. Landlord's in the crib going through it. What are you doing in my house? Ah! Where's the sink? I came to fix it. It's in the kitchen. I thought it was in the drawer. I'll fix it tomorrow when I come for the rent. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. Born in Washington, D.C., the youngest of three children, both of his parents were college professors, and his mother was even a Unitarian minister. After graduating high school, Chappelle realized that he wanted to be in show business when his dad gave him some valuable advice. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. (laughs) So I was really breaking from tradition, and uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having and they had my dad come and talk to me and my dad takes me outside and he's like listen he says to be an actor is a lonely life everybody wants to make it and you might not make it and i said to my dad well well that depends on what making it is dad he was smart smart ass kid depends on what making it is dad he says what do you mean i said well you're a teacher i said if i could make a teacher salary doing comedy I think that's better than being a teacher. And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of it. 
Chappelle moved to New York City and performed at Harlem's famed Apollo Theater in front of the infamous Amateur Night audience, but he was booed off stage. Dave Chappelle later described the experience as the moment that gave him the courage to continue his show business aspirations. So he quickly made a name for himself in the New York comedy circuit. At age 19, he made his film debut in Mel Brooks' Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He also appeared on Star Search three times but lost. The same year, Chappelle was offered the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Concerned the character was demeaning and the movie would bomb, he turned down the part. Just a few years later, his first lead role was in the 1998 comedy film Half-Baked, which he co-wrote. It was around this time that Chappelle landed a role in a pilot TV show based on his failure on stage at the Apollo. I was 23 when I was doing Half-Baked. I was getting ready to turn 24. And I was going through all the things that a dude goes through when it goes from one level to the next, starring in my, a movie that I wrote. So things start getting crazy around you. And my 24th birthday was coming on August the 24th, and I said, this is going to be a big one. And the morning that I turned 24, phone rang, and my sister was like, Dad had a stroke. For the next year, I watched my father teeter on life and death. And it was just all this stuff, man. Like I was, uh, dad was dying, the half-baked didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. I was real upset about that because it was a real cool script. And then I saw it, I was like, hey, man, you made a weed movie for kids. I get a call on my cell phone from Hollywood. I'm like, hello, Hollywood. They're like, hello, Dave. They're like, that pilot you did for Fox, the, it looks like they want to pick it up. We need you to come out because they want to meet with you. And I was like, well, listen, I can't really come out right now. Got a real bad situation at home. Can we talk about this on the phone? No, no, they would rather meet with you in person. Ah! I jumped on that plane and left my father's bedside, which I regret to this day. And I went out and I sat with these people in this room. Yeah, Dave, we really liked the show, but the, the pilot episode was about me getting booed off stage at the Apollo. They go, you know, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's not really any white people in it. So well, it's about the Apollo. It's not really white. Well, you know, we were thinking about the girl on the show. We didn't think she was that funny, not that good looking. I think we should recast her, maybe. And they start using terms like universal appeal. Basically saying they want me to recast the girl with a white woman. I say, yeah, I don't think I can do this, and, and, and I quit. The following day, Dave Chappelle would learn a valuable lesson that he would never forget about the media and himself. The cover of Ratty, Chappelle pulls the race card. The race card. And I get calls from Newsweek, 60 Minutes. Everybody, we want your story. <laughs> now I'm scared to death. I'm like Rosa Parks or something. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was just venting a little bit. And then, a few months later, dad dies. And that's hard for a young dude in his life. That's a, that's a real tough loss. I was there when he died. And he went from being my father to what are we going to do with the body. Within moments, it was over. And I'm going through all this stuff, and this is the guy I would usually talk to, right? Dad. And I got to figure this out for myself. I don't want to figure this out for myself. 
you know, I was beat down. I wasn't living right. You know what I mean? Like the weed thing was just bad habit at this point. And, and, you know what I mean? All these, you know, chicken head girls you mess with when it comes with the territory. I'm just being real. Just being real. <laughs> it wasn't living right, man. I didn't feel good. And, and the stand-up stuff was just some angry stuff. It was just like I was kind of bottoming out. But when my dad died, because I'd been commuting back and forth to Ohio so much, that's when I bought the farm. When we come back, the rest of the Dave Chappelle story, where he turns his back on Hollywood and a $50 million contract. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Story, and now we return to the story of Dave Chappelle. When we left off, Dave's father had died, so he decided to get his family out of L.A. and move to a farm in Ohio. Here's Jesse. So Dave and his family moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his father had lived, buying a 65-acre farm. The illusion of fame and fortune in Hollywood was shattered forever. It's something so real in contrast to what Hollywood is, a very powerful illusion. And when your dad dies, it kind of just broke the spell, like, oh, this is bullshit. Look, I've been spending so much time doing this. What about my family? What about my friends? Wait, whatever happened to my friends? Damn, I don't even have any friends. Ugh. So I bounced, man. And, uh, New Year's Eve, 1999. I, I moved into that farm, and that was it. As far as I was concerned, I was done with show business. But his career in show business was just beginning. In 2003, he debuted his own weekly sketch comedy show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. After just two seasons, it was a massive success. Due to the show's popularity, Comedy Central's new parent company, Viacom, offered Chappelle a $50 million contract to continue production of Chappelle's show for two more years. Season 3 was scheduled to begin airing on May 31st, 2005, but Chappelle stunned fans and the industry when he abruptly left during production for South Africa. Let's start the show. Immediately following his departure, tabloids quickly and repeatedly speculated that Chappelle's exit was driven by drug addiction or a mental health issue. I was freaked out, man, with the fame thing and, and being called uh, crazy and drug addict and all these things. Uh, scared me. You know, being treated that way. Like I'm not a person anymore. And then I got to make some real choices, man. Is that what I want for myself? Did I get too big? Because I like people. I like entertaining. And the higher up I go, for some reason, the less happy I am. You know, is it going to get to the point where 
I'm doing a striptease on TRL or waving a gun on the street, saying they're trying to kill me. No, I'm not going to let it get to that point. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to find a way to, I'm going to find a way to be myself, man. I got to, in Africa, there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work I do, and they just treat me like I'm a regular dude. So I knew that in Africa I'd have a place to sleep, that I wouldn't have to feel strange. And, you know, when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where I'm from, in Africa, they didn't know anything. They was feeding me and taking care of me and taking me to the mall and just regular stuff. And it just made me feel good. It just reminded me that I was a person, you know. It would be some time before Dave Chappelle went back to the United States from Africa and 10 years before he would return to the stage with his stand-up comedy. I didn't even know they were saying those things about me. Then I called home and people would be like, oh my God, are you all right? Yeah, chill, I'm in Africa, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and then I got a call from a journalist that had been working on a story and he was like, yeah, rumor mill's going on about you. Just want to clear a few things up. And I'm like, yeah, hey, what's going on? Okay, uh... Do you smoke crack? I said, what? Do you smoke crack? Did you graduate from high school? Uh, I mean, it was all these crazy questions. And I thought about never coming back. I said, this, this place is crazy. Like, I'm, I'm that dude. I just thought about all the things that celebrities go through and what celebrities become in our culture. You know, if you Brad Pitt and Jennifer Anderson and your marriage is breaking up, that's an awful thing. But to see that speculation in people got to sting a little bit. And then I realized, oh, my God, I'm one of those people. That's a small club, man. That's a weird place to be. Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. So I got scared. I'm not going to lie, y'all. I was scared to death. And I, I didn't touch the mic. But, you know, it was cool, man. The first time I went back out and did stand-up, it was in Cincinnati. So it's not far from the farm. I said, if I got to run, I can get home fast. <laughs> and um, clubs sold out real fast. I played a comedy club. And man, when I walked out on that stage and them people were screaming, I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. Because this industry can say whatever they want, but man, people will hold you up. And that crowd, man, my spirits were so low and they was just holding me up. And I, I hadn't told jokes, but this was just coming back like, cry the kid again, you're the best around. I just, I was, I was just doing it, man. In August of 2013, Dave Chappelle returned to full-time touring stand-up comedy as a headliner. In 2017, Netflix released two never-before-seen specials which would hail directly from Chappelle's personal comedy vault. The specials were an immediate success as Netflix announced a month later that they were the most viewed comedy specials in Netflix history. Also in 2017, Dave Chappelle walked into the newly renovated Chappelle Auditorium at Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina. Chappelle stopped to admire the work of Bishop William D. Chappelle, whom the auditorium is named after. He was a pastor, businessman, Allen University president, and more importantly, Dave Chappelle's great-grandfather. After being awarded the key to the city by the mayor, Dave Chappelle stopped by the auditorium to speak to an audience filled with students about the decisions he's made in his own life and the importance of staying true to yourself. For all the things that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. 
I, I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004, I had a $50 million deal on the table. And in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. <laughs> the idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you, you do what you think is best. Uh, whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father where someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his, him and his wife. It's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to. And he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger than just ourselves. And today I'm standing in front of you guys, and I know you guys are like, oh, I know you're bored. But I see family of mine in the front row that, that I, someone who I've never met, and I just realize how, how all, all of us are, are connected. That my great-grandfather built something more substantial than buildings. He, he built a community. And he built, more importantly than a community, he, he built a way. People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You got to keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find a way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse in a maze that just finds the cheese. But the one who knows about good and bad will realize that he's in a maze. It's okay to be afraid because you can't be brave or courageous without fear. The idea of being courageous is that even though you're scared, you just do the right thing anyway. So in 2004, I walked away from $50 million, and in November, I made a deal for $60 million. So... Although I am not the most famous comedian of my time, I would like to know what their great-grandfathers did. I'm, I'm very proud today. Thank you very much. And that's the story of the one and only Dave Chappelle, a testament to being true to yourself. He walked away from a $50 million contract, fame, and the adoration of his fans just to be there for his family and himself. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American history. In 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really. The Beastie Boys, barely out of their teens, had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act. Now, here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with that rock and me. My team. The cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauk, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond, three MCs from NYC, started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like The Misfits and The Dead Kennedys and some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. In 1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Ruben's DJ stint would be short-lived, and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin. The very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. I was born to be the king of the bebop swing that has the records that were made early in the years of hip hop. They were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that. It was a DJ scratching, and it was beats. Who can make a cripple man dance by using his mouth if he give me a chance? I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record store I hung out in, and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC. Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. So insignificant, you could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. 
Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenaged boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D. Rick definitely came from like a whole ACDC, like Led Zeppelin, Long Island, like rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess in that sense, kind of introduced us because we kind of came from like punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip hop. And he kind of definitely brought that, that kind of in, in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of like Led Zeppelin having beats or, you know, ACDC having grooves and beats, whatever. Here's Ruben. I grew up on Long Island and kind of liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll. So I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and, and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip hop. It was just an interesting cross-pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different places. After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys video was at. The only reason that we haven't done a video yet is because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to Beastie TV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long. The Beastie survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Manello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre. So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap. On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes, and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian, the audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience, the black audience at the Apollo, which a white audience sits there and goes, okay, entertain me. A black audience goes, what you got? What you got, sucker? Basically, because they, they want to be entertained. And when the Beasties first came on, they were not greeted with, with widespread approval, but usually by the end of their set, they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly. We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming and hollering, trying to get to them, wanting to have a good time, and, and loving the guys just generally because of they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked, and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, the beats were very aggressive. So in hip-hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC. So those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats, with the big drums and the big bop, bop, boom, bop, and all that craziness. And all we did is just scratch it. So you heard the zigga, zigga, boom, boom, zigga, boom, boom, bop. So we always used the same, like similar beats. So it was kind of like right there on the same thing. But uh, it was the commentary and the delivery that was a little different. Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC. And I remember these guys coming out and doing Hold It Now Hit It and the crowd went crazy. 
Every, I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to, to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. That's Rakim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage because everybody felt like they were their little brothers. Like They would open up for us. It was like the black audience, and we could be like down in the South, down in Texas, or down in South Carolina, in some really Southern black Negro town. And when the BCs came out, and um, Dr. Dre was scratching, and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming, it wasn't like people said, all right, let me go get a prank. And people stood there and was like, yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These white boys are good. Say, ho, ho. Here's Public Enemies, Chuck D. They was almost like the flip side, like Jackie Robinson was the baseball, the Beastie Boys were to rap music. Here's Beastie Boys, MCA, and Mike D. When we first came out making hip-hop, people were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip-hop or doing it too much. So, like, I guess a lot of kids would just check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what, you guys are white? Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time. And when we come back, more on the life and the work of the Beastie Boys, and we love music here, every kind, from Miles Davis to Merle Haggard. We do everything here on Our American Stories. We continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler. From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds, one in the hip-hop world and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from the Village Voice. Three Jerks Make a Masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that's sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR, to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian Joan Rivers. Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right? Kill. 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 That's ill, Joan. Like, well, I'm telling you, I've got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. Okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album. <laughs> It didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the R&B charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer, 
Say Adams. I remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out, and he says to me, he goes, this is going to be so great. We're going to be, you know, on American Bandstand, and we're going to do Soul Train, and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him, and I was like, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going to do that. And the record came out, and it exploded. And literally, in two months, we were in L.A. on Soul Train, Don Cornelius, and I, I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did. Licensed to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States. To this day, the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week, a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop. Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part 2, but instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip-hop. Using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, from the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles, the head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more cowbell. With their Commodores-powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy. Paul's really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record, nobody had heard that before. People didn't know you could make a record sound like that. It's just this beautifully layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick, they sampled David Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears, they were open to everything. And you could never make that record today. It'd be way too expensive. You could still use recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them. So it hit a lucky time where they, there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with. With the release of Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys had reinvented their sound. It was another masterpiece, but it was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George. Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were going to grow with them. And what happened is that the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans. Ten years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. 
Fast forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots. They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you don't end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor of it. Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. The record's blend of punk, funk, and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins Band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Linkin Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach. It's a phenomenon how influential they are on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear basically becomes an instant uh, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend, Tony Hawk. These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate, punk, just the, the whole vibe, and uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of, of our interests would have. The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group, the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song Mullet Head on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994, that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single Sabotage was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii Five-0, Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To the Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix Up, Adam MCA Yauk was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th, 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony, having been admitted to the hospital the same day. 
The following month, Adam MCA Yauk died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and Ad-Rock would not perform under the Beastie Boys name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game, selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. If you like music, our arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, and my favorite, George Martin, the fifth Beatle. I know, he's British, but the impact the Beatles had on American music, well, they're still having it. This is Lee Habib, the Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.